Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening Rod. Yeah, I'm well. And here we are on the 9th of October. Um, I paused because I was just checking the uh, show notes to see if we'd put the date in the American format or not. And I just had a moment, so I apologise. And it's uh, episode 89. It is. I'm not American. I suppose, strictly speaking, we should probably go year, 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 month, month, day, day, just like, like a programmer would rather than doing it this way. But I assume we're both Brits. We can cope with the date in the correct order. So... Interesting you start with this. When I name a file, I go year, 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 month, month, day, day. Because not always day, day. Sometimes I leave day out. But then it orders it nicely. It's in chronological order when you when you browse by name. I really like that way of doing it. But when I see the date written down, I want it to be the day, the month, the year. To me, that is the most logical when read. I don't understand the American format. Swapping the day and the month it seems very bizarre to me. I I could be swayed to Fahrenheit. I can understand why they measure the temperature in Fahrenheit because it gives you a bit more degrees of flexibility. But yeah, the dates I don't understand. We're a country of contrasts really, aren't we? And as are the Americans, actually. I mean, they've stuck to their feet and inches and pounds and things like that a lot more than we have. We've gone mostly metric, except when it comes to miles per hour and a pint of lager. And, you know, the, we still have a habit of weighing ourselves in stones, despite the fact we mostly know what kilograms are as well. It's 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 an odd situation. Yeah, I think in my head, if you tell me what you weigh in stones, I kind of have a rough idea. If you go, I'm 20 stone, I go, huh, I think you're a bit heavy. Whereas if you go, you're 10 stone, I go, that's eh, probably sounds, I'm pretty envious. Whereas if you go, I'm um, 85 kilograms, I'll be like, is that good or bad? I, I don't know. But I should know. You should know. You know how much a bag of sugar is. I bet you know how much 20 kilos is to take your bag on an airplane, though. Oh, I don't fly that much. Uh, well, I've got that to look forward to tomorrow, and it can't exceed 20 kilograms because it's a Ryanair. That's quite a lot, though. I thought even, even my wife can make 20 kilograms work. It depends how long you're going for, doesn't it? A lot of, like, British Airways and co. will give you 23 kilograms. Like, the Canadian Odyssey I went on, that was 23 kilograms on Air Canada and on United. So I'm quite a minimal packer, I must confess. I don't mind reusing some stuff. I don't take a lot with me. As long as I've got my iPad, I'm, I'm gravy. You might be, but I find, and I hate the fact that this probably sounds slightly sexist. Let's just say the ladies in my life are not light packers. I have one lady in my life and definitely not a light packer. Definitely not. Saying there's a lot of gents that aren't light packers as well. And frankly, if you went through my tech rucksack, you'd probably say I wasn't a light packer either, to be fair. So there is balance in these things. Uh, You always take far more tech than I do. I literally just take an iPad and I'm done. I ain't taking no iPad tomorrow. It's laptop all the way, baby. Yeah, we live in different worlds. And you've got the big laptop as well, so that's going to significantly add to your weight. It weighs a couple of kilos. Should we fire on and do some follow-up? Yeah, great. Great, let's get into follow-up. So first up, I just thought I'd comment on my microphone. So I've got the same setup tonight. I'm still running the same OS. I've got the same keyboard and mouse, but I have updated the firmware on my microphone. I don't know whether this is going to make any difference. I only did this afternoon. It was a minor firmware update, but... I thought it's worth the risk, so I have done that. Other than that, nothing's changed. So hopefully the audio will be as good as it's been. Well, you haven't clipped yet, so my hopes are high. Fingers crossed. I will, just a little note on that on our Rode USB NT1 microphones. It has inserted virtual devices into my Mac sound input-output panel. I really don't like it. Occasionally it'll default to that and I'll have no sound in and sound out. So that's a bit invasive, Rode. You might make good microphones, but I really don't like that. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Is that just like an alternative input-output source? 
Yeah, it just shows as a source. Do you remember back in the Mac days where there was used to be a thing called Soundflower, which was like a layer that would insert itself into the audio setup? So you could have mic in, speakers out, MacBook speakers, headphone, etc., etc., and you get a thing called Soundflower. So apps that didn't have an immediate audio output could use that sort of layer to put things out. Rode appears to have the same thing for their recording app. Was this in a Mac OS X Classic or... Mac OS X, I'd oh, okay. say Tiger, Jaguar, Leopard sort of days. Then I was very much in that world, but did not know. Well, I once had a broken MacBook, uh, and I took it into the Apple Store, and the first thing they did was went to lo- went to look for it, because quite often people who were complaining about audio output issues, it had actually defaulted to Soundflower. Uh, and it wasn't that, it was actually broken. But uh, it's interesting, that's the first thing they went for to look. Oh, okay. I must have pass- passed me by then, apologies. It's still a thing, you can still download it. Okay. Wow. I'm gonna. I'll put a little note in the show notes so people can see that. But yeah, Soundflower back in the day. Good. Okay. Moving on. Uh, we were talking last week about uh, seven, uh, iOS 18, the overheating issues that Mac. Sorry, my my head is completely gone. iPhone Pros and iPhone Pro Maxes were having. Uh, it was still present even in 17.0.2. We got the 17.0.3 update last week, and my phone's been cold as ice. Frankly, I don't know about yours. Mine's been okay, apart from when I was at the football match at the weekend with my son, and my phone's just in my pocket. I wasn't even using the thing, it's just there. But God, it felt a little bit warm, and I think it was struggling for mobile signal because I went back later and looked at battery. I thought, why is it getting so warm? I wonder whether it was polling for a mobile phone signal because it said it burnt 14% of the battery um, with low network coverage. But it just got really warm. But the rest of the time, it's been, been perfect. Can't, can't complain even in my car with carplay and navigation going it's been fine so i just found that a bit odd but now on the whole really good i must confess though speaking to my family they're like why are there all these updates out for my iphone that do nothing you know oh what 1701 because none of them have got new phones it makes no difference to them and i do worry whether apple are doing too many updates i get why they're rushing them out they're dealing with the problems which is right but for a lot of people these updates make no difference yeah, I suppose that's fair. There were reports of the 14 Pro overheating as well, doing some things. Again, I didn't really notice it before this. I certainly haven't noticed it after the update. If it was a problem, it's been fixed. I kind of share your empathy with other members and, and colleagues and friends who go, why are there so many updates to the phone all of a sudden? You know, you just gave us a major OS update. I just restarted my phone last week. You know, those people that aren't looking for the updates, like, you know, you and I are on the various websites looking for updates, what's new in this version, all the rest of it. Most people, it's a pain in the bum when they've got to restart their phones. So, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, there definitely is that. But you don't want people to get fatigued with updating because generally you want people to be on the latest version and you want them to be up to date and get the new functionality. So I think it is a delicate line uh, for Apple to walk. It is interesting. I was reading an article today about people changing to Windows 11 is at the lowest level it's been in a very long time. Most people are sticking with Windows 10 and Windows 10 is out of support next year. So Microsoft have got a bit of a problem in their hands where they're going to have an operating system that's going to expire, as usual. But actually, the uptake of the next one hasn't gone so well. And a lot of Linux people were saying, this is it, we're finally going to have the year of Linux, which they're not going to have because people will just stay on Windows 10 without the security updates. But it is interesting how OS on with these kinds of things, while as the general public are quite happy where they are. If they kept patching them and updating them, and we're going to touch on Google on this in a little bit as well, 
they, they just quite happily get on. So I wonder if Microsoft will actually release a Windows 12 and try and jump over this pause that's been to Windows 11. Do you think, sorry, a couple of thoughts. Do you think people don't want to go to 11 because generally every other version of Windows has been pretty good? Because we saw that back in the, I don't I think, you, I think you had XP and then I think you had Vista and Vista was not great. Then you had 7, which was amazing. 8, not great. We didn't get a 9. And then obviously 10, to be fair, fantastic. And then 11's out and it's a bit of a nothing sandwich kind of thing. But I don't know. I'm surprised by 11 because when I see it at work, I'm like, oh, it looks a bit like the Mac. You know, it's got, got quite a good look about it. We've pushed it out to the whole company. Everybody's on 11 by default. Um, but we are probably one of the first FTSE 250s here in the UK. So it's one of the top 350, you know, biggest companies in the UK. We're probably one of the only ones actually 100% on Windows 11. They're just isn't the drive to get there but i think a lot of companies were slow to get to 10 and they've spent all that time getting to 10 that they then don't want another big rollout to 11 if it's a lot of work for not much gain i think it's different slightly different corporately there's not a huge change between 10 and 11 but what they did for consumers was they limited the hardware you, you needed new hardware to move to windows 11 you know the, the tpm module the trusted platform module you needed the sunset some cpus that weren't supported by it so I think the general public are probably a bit more liable to stay on the OS that comes with their operating system rather than, again, even if it's a free update, go and chase it. So it's that sort of tricky balance for Microsoft and Apple and Google is how long do you keep going the hardware that you've got and you support before you move on to the next thing? Because supporting a really old thing is problematic, isn't it? For lots of reasons. But at the same time, as Apple were hinting at, you kind of want to keep these devices around because they're full of rare earth metals and it takes a lot of effort to recycle them and et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. It is odd, though, that, like I say, Microsoft is struggling to get traction with it. Unless there's a lots of old PCs out there that can't take it because this, to be fair to Microsoft, it's the first time they've really moved the minimum requirements in a significant way. Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, moving on, I... Finally got a replacement for my fine woven case, which I said last week I wasn't that bothered about other than I wouldn't take it out in the rain because I'm sure it was going to dissolve. So my replacement case from Kadabe, which is the same manufacturer as my last iPhone case arrived, it's called a Lucid Clear, so you can actually see through it. It's one of those strange ones where you can actually see the magnets for the MagSafe built around it, but it looks really nice. They say it's not going to yellow. I'm really pleased with it. It does add a little bit of weight to the phone, but... I was listening to the Rebound podcast with Dan Morin um, and uh, Lex Friedman and others. And they, two of them have gone caseless and they were both complaining about having scratches on their uh, iPhone Pros. And they had iPhone 14s as well and neither of those had scratches. So I think it may be a little bit more delicate at the moment before and reinforces my decision. I'm quite glad I put a case on it. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, so I was just looking at the case you bought. I see it's got complete cutouts for all the buttons. How do you feel about that? I'm perfectly happy with it. The buttons are a bit of a pig to get to, i got to say. I do press the edge of the case more than the button, but I'm adjusting. I can get used to it. And what do you think about the the white circle dash, which is on the Apple clear case? And I used to have one of these for my iPhone 12, if I remember correctly. So that's just the magnets showing where the MagSafe guides and alignments are. And actually, it's a nice, strong magnet. I don't know, it seems slightly stronger than the one that's default on the phone. When I stick it on the thing on my on the dash of my car, it supports the phone an awful lot better than it when it was naked. And I don't really want this falling off, so I, I can live with it. There is a whole thing about only Apple can show the Apple logo on a case. So 
actually making them transparent so you can see through it, that's good. That's that's a consideration. And I quite like the fact I can see the colour of the phone. Whenever you put a case, a solid case, in your phone, you don't really see the colour that's underneath it. Apple's own cases were disgusting colour-wise, so I'm quite glad that I can see the natural titanium I've got underneath. No, I can understand that. Partly why I like my white phone that is caseless, because I think it's a great case. I love the colour of it, and it is nice to see it. I did flirt with buying a case i'm just going to put a link in now to a company called mouse because i think i'd seen a couple of adverts i can't remember if they're on television or on youtube or something but they basically show people with the mouse case on and they throw their phone up in the air let it land on the floor and i thought oh, should i just get something like that something quite small i haven't been in the bullet i'm still going caseless and i haven't scratched my phone yet so i see that as a win um what i did purchase though was for about £10 on Amazon was like a little sock just to slide the phone into more just so that if ever I want because sometimes I put my phone in my bag and it was just so I could put it in my bag and not have like a pen scratch it um, or what have you so yeah that is something that I I have done so um, I'm going to go with that for the moment so it's like you've got an iPod sock for your phone kind of well I'm going on holiday in a couple of weeks and I thought if I if we go to the beach or something I probably just want to put my phone away I don't want to get sand in it so that's why I've, I've gone with that like a little pouch and like I said it was quite a good price and it's a neat fit for the phone so I'm going to try that out like I said yeah it's just going to pop it in the bag every now and again and whereas if I have my phone in my pocket I put nothing else in the pocket with the phone it's always just the phone um, but I'm always yeah always slightly concerned but I'd be concerned going to the beach whether I had a case or not because obviously the screen's open to the elements as are the ports and everything so let us know how you get on. Maybe we'll report back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, let's report back and see how our cases and socks have gone. I've put a link in the show notes to iPod socks, which were announced at the same time as the iPod Hi-Fi, I think. Yeah, maybe that's when Apple was starting to really lean into the iPod land. Fair enough. Should we do some news? Yeah, let's go into the news then. We've got quite a, well, quite a few little topics. We've got a bit of a main show today, haven't we? We have got a little bit of a main show, and it's quite nice. We can keep it snappy. Some of these news stories are quite short, but I just think they're worth mentioning. Just in light of all the other gates and things that we've had going on with Bend Gate and Heat Gate and, you know, Case Gate with the fine woven thing, there now may be a Wi Fi gate as well. Some users on iOS 17 are reporting issues with their Wi Fi. People thought it was just a network issue or problems with their, their own Wi Fi rather than what was going on with the phone. But there seems to be an increasing number of reports for people being unable to browse the web on their home network when there's good strength on their Mac on Wi-Fi next to it compared to the phone. There's other reports on Reddit. Adjusting the Wi-Fi bands seems to make no change, so whether it's something in the Wi-Fi chip or a software thing, who knows? I I think I might have seen one dead zone once when I would expect normally to have Wi-Fi, but other than that, I can't honestly say I've noticed any problems with the Wi-Fi on my phone. Yeah, my wife's had this on her iPhone that was running iOS 16, Mine all seemed fine. I used to have it. I didn't know whether it was where we had a mesh network uh, with the arrows and whether we're moving between access points. Um, and I said to her, look, I'll upgrade you to 17 when it comes out. And I thought I'd fix it, but she still had the problem. So I'm not sure if this is just an iOS 17 thing, but it's simply something I have seen when you turn off Wi-Fi and then Bosch is just straight online over cellular. So I think there is something in it, but I don't think I fully understand what it is. I think there is an issue with Apple devices and mesh because my Ubiquiti devices quite often have extra notes for iPhone users and roaming between access points and things, which Android phones don't seem to have. So let's face it, fundamentally the, the chips, and I think they're Broadcom chips or Intel chips that, that will be running the Wi-Fi on them, will be the same in an Android as, as to, to an iPhone, You know, maybe built to a slightly different specification, but more or less the same thing. So it's odd and therefore must be a software thing about roaming between access points. And like you say, maybe that is the problem. 
Yeah, that's what I could pin it to because you'd use your phone fine and say you'd move down to the next room in the house. I haven't got a very big house. And it's, oh, maybe I have just changed access point and that's why it's not working. But I I never really got any further with with it. I hadn't had the problem, but it, I've, I have struggled with it a little bit over the last couple of days on both my iPad and on my phone. But I, I don't know whether it's my Wi-Fi, my internet, or is it the OS on my device. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts there, isn't there? Oh, well, one to keep an eye on for sure. Next up is a story that I was quite keen to talk about, but has actually been withdrawn by the publisher. So there was a story in Wired in the week about how Google alters your search uh, results based on what you type in order to get you to spend a bit more money. And the the gist of the story was if you searched for baby clothes, for example, and they had a particular sponsorship deal with, or a particular advertising deal with a particular company, Bershka, I don't know an awful lot of kids' clothing stores anymore, for example, they would try and elevate the searches for Bershka kids' clothes over and above whoever else wasn't paying for advertising. Just in very subtle ways, they might sort of push it up so it's closer to the top rather than being sort of further down, you know, below their own ads towards the inviolate. It's meant Google are not meant to tinker with the search results, you know, after the original sort of first three ones that are advertised or whatever it is. The ones after that should be just entirely based on search ranking. And it didn't seem to be the case. They would be dynamically altering the query, the search algorithms it went through. So quite a concerning story, really, for... It possibly further proving Google's entirely an advertising company, not a search company. But the story's been withdrawn by Wired, and Wired are normally quite a reputable you know, source of news for sure. So I don't know if this is because it was wrong, or Google have complained, or the journalist has recused themselves, but I've left the link in the show notes so you can see where it's been taken down. But this is interesting. It is interesting. It's what I think. One, not surprised Google may do something like this. Like you say, they are an advertising company. Two, Surprised the story's been taken down. I, th- I really hold Wired in high regard. So it'd be interesting to see if there's then an update in the future as to why the story's got taken down, like a proper reason why it's got taken down, and then if there's going to be a, a republished version. Yeah, let's, again, it's another one to keep an eye on, but it is super interesting because, you know, with the most cynical hat on in the world, I'd be surprised if Google didn't do something like this more than if they did, you know, allegedly. Uh, agreed. Like we say, they are they are an advertising company more than they are a phone manufacturer, which should tee us up nicely for our next story. Yeah. So Google had an event. Uh, it's funny where we were talking about the Microsoft Surface event a few weeks back, and these barely scratch the surface. Maybe it's because we're very much in the Apple world. But whenever there's an Apple event, you see it in the Guardian, you see it on the BBC, you see it on ITV News, you see new devices have been released, and this is what they are. But Google and Microsoft both have events where they release laptops and phones and Chromebooks and pads and tablets and things like that. And you barely see any penetration in mainstream media at all, despite the fact they're having quite big events. Anyway, Google announced the Pixel 8 which is sort of a, an evolution of the design language they've had with the Pixel for quite a while now. You know, better cameras, slightly better processors, their own TensorFlow chip, all this kind of stuff. But what they're really leaning into, and this isn't a surprise, is sort of expertise in software. So they're sort of really pushing forward on the AI machine learning type stuff that's been built into the phones for a while. So anybody that's seen a Google advert in the last few years, for example, has had the, if somebody um, photobombs your picture, there's somebody in the background you don't want. Within the camera app, you can draw a circle around them and it'll just remove them from the photo. They're sort of pushing those kinds of features deeper and deeper into the phone. So there's generative AI backgrounds based on the description of what you want. There's more on-device and in-cloud encoding of if somebody uh, leaves a transcript or you want to make your own notes as a, um, into the voice recorder on the phone, it will give you an AI transcript of those notes. Something I'm surprised Apple doesn't do, actually, considering they do that on the Mac and on-device now. But they're sort of really pushing into these features of the phone really quite heavily. 
Yeah, I'm not surprised. I guess Google, they've got to differentiate themselves. They've With Apple and with um, Samsung, obviously, they're probably their two biggest competitors. They're certainly the, the two number one players. And as we've said, they are an advertising company more than they are anything else. But they are good at software and smart. So I'm, I'm not surprised they're leaning into the software side of it. I must confess, I thought the phones looked, looked really good. I quite like their industrial design. Again, I don't know what it is with phone manufacturers and not wanting to put the cameras in the middle, though, on the back. Or at least make, on this one, they've got what looks like a big dynamic island, for want of a better word. But, but centralise it, and you could put the flash inside it, but it, it, the off-centeredness of it uh, doesn't look quite right. And I'm also not a big fan of the G. Like, I don't like the font that Google used for the G. And I think I don't like it, because the top of the G stops before... I don't know what you call it, the line in the middle of the G, if you see what I mean, it's not quite a symmetrical letter. And yeah, I don't like that. It messes with my OCD. Fair enough. I mean, we've all got things that upset us about other companies. But one of the most interesting things about this, beyond all the software, and this sort of gets into the second part of the story, is Google have said they're now going to support in software these devices for seven years. And that's really impressive. Apple offers five on its devices. So seven years of security and OS updates for a device like this is very laudable. I'm going to I'm going to put in my reservation in a minute, but what do you think of them offering this sort of sustainability for their phone? I think that's fantastic. I would love to see them do, like Apple do this with the SE, for example, that would probably have made me buy one for, say, my parents, because I can buy them a phone. They're not that fussed about all the features, but I know they're good for seven years of updates. It'll work. It'll be hopefully quick. I think that's a really good feature. We've got to see them deliver it. Maybe we need follow-up in seven years' time. But I think fantastic. And if they're saying it publicly, I'm fair, you know, I'm sure they're going to try and deliver that. But I think it's really good they're doing it. I agree. And hopefully it will spur Apple and others on, you know, in, with companies like Fairphone, to actually follow through and do this kind of thing. Apple, with all their sustainability and uh, all their green noises they made during their event and with their terrible video, Software updates would be a huge part of this. If people could keep their phones, you know, actually usable to five to six to seven years, rather than getting slower and the batteries being knackered and all the rest of it, which is probably more of a problem. This is good because Google up till now has only offered two or three years of software updates for the devices. So I think this is a major step forward for them. Shall I tell you my reservation now? Well, I was just going to say one reason we stopped using Android devices at work was because we couldn't guarantee how long we could keep them around. And you can't always with the iPhones. Um, but for example, the iPhone 8 came out in 2017 and it's gone end of life now. So it had a six-year run, to be fair. 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, yeah, 23, six years run. So Apple aren't actually that far off this, but they don't publicly declare it because I don't think they necessarily know when they bring out a device how long it's going to last for. But I think it's great Google are doing it. Like I say, it would make me want to buy something like this for a family member knowing it could stay around. Now you're going to tell us what your reservation is. So my reservation is, Google has a real habit of announcing things and then killing it. And I've actually put a little link in the show notes to killedbygoogle.com, which goes through all the products that Google have killed recently. And it's it's bang up to date. So Google Podcasts don't support that anymore. Google Domains don't support that anymore. Google Album Archive don't support that anymore. YouTube Stories, Google Street View, Google Code Competitions, Google On Home, Google Stadia, their gaming thing, Google Wave... All these chat programs that we've talked before and SMS messages thing. And if you scroll down this list, there is a lot of things that Google have been all in on and then killed off. And 
you know, the Pixel, when it was announced, uh, sorry, the Pixel 7, I think it was, came with a very sort of Apple-type thing, whereas if you went to uh, the Google Pixel Plus program, I don't think that's the exact name of it, but you paid your whatever it was per uh, per month to get the phone and, and uh, support for the device, they would upgrade it at the end of the two years. The two-year period must have been the Pixel 6. When it got to the 23 months, not quite the 24 months, they killed the program. So everybody on there didn't get their updated phone in two years, despite the fact they've been paying for this program for Google Drive and all the other bits and pieces that came along with it. So while I laud Google for coming up and stating something like this, I have very little faith on their ability to follow through. Yeah, they... They've got form, haven't they? You are quite right. So I was just looking back through this list. Obviously, there's a lot in here, but there is a lot. And I think this is the problem. They throw so much stuff at the wall to see what works. that They don't necessarily think about, actually, if we do go live with this, are we going to... Are we going to keep it, maintain it, support it? And did, I think we had an article over the last year or so that said at Google, the way you incentivize was to launch something new and that got you promoted but nobody ever got promoted to keep something alive, if that makes sense. So there's, there's, they've had this culture of bringing new things to market, which they've done a lot of, obviously, looking at this, but um, there's no then incentive to actually maintain it, keep it going. So it's a bit of a shame, shame to see so much uh, stuff that has died. Um, I wonder if you added all this up, what their average life of something is, because some of these things, you know, gone for five, ten years. Some of these things have only gone for one year. So... Yeah, it would be super interesting to get this sort of average there. Yeah, I, it worries me. But then in the interests of balance, I put Killed by Microsoft on as a link as well. And if we just look at the top row of this, Skype for Business, not long for this world. October 2025, they formally announced the end of it. Of course, Teams is going to replace that, but it's gone. Visual Studio for Mac, going August 2024. And the Xbox Game Store, gone July 2024. Xamarin. Windows Server Essentials, Cortana. These are big name things that they may hit a big song and dance about releasing and they're going to kill them off as well. So big companies aren't immune to this kind of thing and you've got to keep your hardware and your software platforms lean and mean. But uh, this is quite interesting when you sort of scroll through these lists and you realize what... Because to me, Microsoft are the company that don't really give up on things. Windows being a perfect example of that. Word and Office. They buy them. They're not great. They get better, they get dominance, they enhance, they extend, they embrace, etc. And then they extinguish. But the extinguish part seems written quite loud here, doesn't it? Definitely. What's interesting looking at this, though, is Skype for Business. I thought that went end of life ages ago, but they're still keeping it going. But then conversely, how did they keep Silverlight going, which was their Flash equivalent, until 21 which seems like they were too late to to get rid of it and remove it from the world. So it's a tricky balance, isn't it? Knowing when to invest and support and, and when to pull the plug on it. Yeah, it's, it makes me slightly sad scrolling through this. I've got I've scrolled down a little bit. 2006 to 2015, Zoom. You know, Windows Media Center, Sidewinder joysticks. I think it had a Sidewinder joystick or something. Never had one, but they were awesome. Were. Anyway... There's, a lot, there's quite an interesting web page to scroll through if you've had anything to do with computers for the last few years. Have a look at the Google and Microsoft links in the show notes. Yeah, that is cool. Right, what's next on the list? So next we were talking uh, last week about how much iPhone production had been moved to India. It was like 25% of the current iPhone, I think, that we're actually aiming to produce uh, within India. We said, this is great as long as they're sort of respecting workers' rights within the country as they do it because they had a bit of a reputation in China for not doing that. And this is a report on 9to5Mac that the Indian iPhone plant has been found highly hazardous to worker health in a previously secret report. So I guess this isn't that surprising, but not good. 
not surprising, but in this day and age, with Apple lording over us how good their models are, it needs to include their supply chain. They're making their supply chain hit their green targets, and they should also make their supply chain hit the, the targets what's right by their employees. Totally. I mean, you read something like this. The inspection found that six workers whose job it was to manually solder iPhone parts together this is the quote, were not provided with protective equipment, including safety goggles, chemical resistant gloves or respirators, according to a letter sent to the government inspector to Foxconn. In another part of the factory, the inspector found that workers were not provided with suitable goggles to protect their eyes from excessive light and infrared radiation. He identified 77 pieces of automated machinery that were missing crucial interlock mechanisms on the doors to prevent operation under dangerous conditions. Yeah, it's not good at all, is it? Really, really not good. Must do better. Agreed, agreed. Hopefully, Apple, like I say, when they're talking about their 2030 target for being green, they should have their 24 target for being a great employer, including their supply chain. In- including their supplier. So I think it's, you know, due, due, due diligence by us. You know, we, we may knock Microsoft and Google and others and Amazon, but uh, I think Apple are also in for their fair share of having their fingers held to the fire on their promises. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And then what we've got now, we've got Apple and Korea. Yeah, so we've I think we've touched on this story a little bit before, where Korea were looking at the the uh, app stores for both Google and Microsoft uh, and, and Apple, and we're just trying to reach a, a judgment. And at this point, Korean antitrust regulators have found Apple and Google both guilty of anti-competitive behavior, which isn't entirely surprising. 9to5Mac do a nice little sort of run-through of all the issues they've had going back to 2017 with, with uh, Korean antitrust regulators. Not a good look. I mean... It's just a little run of stories where this isn't surprising for Google and Apple. They have got a monopoly in, uh, on app stores. We know this. All the sort of antitrust thing that's going on, all the legal cases involving Epic and others are very much a factor. And it's, uh, I see the story and it doesn't surprise me. No, it doesn't. And this one about where it relates to Apple, they're saying about how Apple throttled, throttled apologies, performance, which I remember that happening. And i never saw it as an issue but obviously they were trying to protect batteries and then you've then also got the ios you know the 15 to 30 percent charge that apple put on developers that they they take a cut off so it's it's two quite big things here but the battery piece goes back to 2017 so it's been going on a long time just still bubbling away and we did report on this about the same time we were talking about the dating apps, and I think it was Holland. It was when we were start we started talking about this at the start. And the finding from South Korea's telecoms regulator said, Apple and Google have abused their dominant app market position and have been warned of possible fines totaling up to fifty point five million dollars. And it's not pocket change that amount. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, and Apple insists it's complied with the laws and made changes, but. You're not going to get very far arguing with a regulator that you have or you haven't done something. If they've said this, you haven't done something. Yeah, they're not going to be talking to you otherwise, are they? Absolutely not. So another thing, I, again, I'll circle back to being surprised at WWDC that Apple didn't say something about you know the App Store and where they were going to go next. It, really. Yeah, I was surprised by that, actually. And we've seen that really it's been generally quite quiet ever since. Definitely. Moving on, I thought I'll hand this story over to you because you're the Teams fanboy. I am the Teams fanboy. I, I do generally like Teams. I, I, I can't deny it. Um, this one's annoyed me a little bit because it's great. We've got a new, faster, redesigned Teams app out for Windows and Mac. 
Where, where's the iPad one? Where, where's the mention of the iPad supporting the uh, new camera feature of iOS 17 where you can use your studio displays camera? That's, that's what I really want. This is interesting because we use Teams in my office and people do complain that it just swallows whatever memory is there. It just, you know, it gobbles it up. Um, so I think this will actually be really beneficial to us because, you know, we're running it on devices 8 gigabytes of RAM. Um, that's on 4,000 people device so it'd be great that actually we could roll this update out and hopefully they'd all see some performance increases you know across the board and teams is one of those apps that is just running the entire time you know it's never shut is it it's running before you even open your web browser or go into outlook it's there the whole time so this is great that microsoft are doing some engineering on it i must say though my team have also reported back lately the new version of outlook for windows it's just a big web view it's not native and they're all missing bits that they liked in the old app. But I can see why Microsoft are doing it, like Apple, I guess. They're trying to get to a position where you make something once and you can roll it out to all your platforms, whereas what you're normally doing is having nuanced versions, especially Outlook, which has got a lot of legacy code inside it and loads of legacy windows that just wouldn't be there anymore. So I kind of understand why they're trying to do it. But no, it's great to see that Microsoft are investing in Teams. They should keep doing it. And let's get it on my Apple TV and let's get the iPad version. I'll be a happy camper. Yeah, I've got a couple of things about this, I guess. I use Teams a lot less than you. It's firmly shut down until I actually have to invoke it, frankly. Uh, so they're moving away from Electron. Electron was a web development app where you could deploy to Linux or Mac or Windows, having just written your code base once. It's knocked on the Mac particularly for being quite baggy and overweight. So 1Password, for example, was rewritten to use Electron as a front end so they could put an iPad version and a Mac version and a Windows version, etc., etc. They used Rust on the back end, I think it was, so they'd have a nice, tight, well-written back end of it, but front end development was an Electron, so it was right once and done. Slack uses Electron, for example. So Microsoft moving away from that, I don't think is a bad thing. They're saying it takes up 70% less disk space. You know, that you're using one of their own technologies, Microsoft Edge Web View 2, whatever that is, and the React JavaScript library to put it together. So that all sounds good. So my thoughts are, I don't like the way Microsoft deploy Teams. I don't like the fact I can't just hit a server and get an update or it pushes out an update. It kind of does it in its own time. You may have more control of that corporately than we do as end users, but it's like our, our best gold star customers will get this first, then developers might get it, and then this might get it, and then ultimately we'll give it to the plebs down at the bottom. So I really don't like the way they deploy software like this. No, I'd agree with you there. I have the same frustrations with Eero. Ever roll out in the same way, but I'm like, no, if I'm going to get it, let me go and get it. I think we have quite a bit of control on it at work. As I don't use a PC, I, I don't know, but we have different testing groups at work. So, you know, the IT team will get it first, then we roll it out to, you know, our first round of users, make sure it's okay, and then it goes out to the, the wider user base. We're generally in quite a privileged position, I guess, because we're running the latest version of Windows, latest versions of Office. So, we, we're moving everything out little and often. So, this, though, I'm going to be keen to speak to my team and see when we're going to get this out there because I think this will be beneficial to a lot of people if there's performance upgrades in there, like I say. Yeah. But I'm with you. Sometimes if you've got somebody that wants to go and get it, let let them go and get it as long as your organization allow that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. My second thought was just something you said about Outlook, you know, losing features in its full-fat desktop client mode. And to this day, it baffles me why I can't have distribution lists in new Outlook anymore. Why is that? a difficult feature that's gone away yeah well you mean like your own distribution list yeah i agree with that because every monday i send an email to the same five people 
why can't I just have a little list with those five people on? But I just have have their email addresses and paste it in, and off I go. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't get that one. But I can understand as well that why you'd want to take some bits out of a twenty-year application because it was built in a different time and the the world has moved on. So it's a balance, though, isn't it, of knowing when to kill a, f- a feature, as we were talking about. Google and Microsoft killing entire apps. You've also, when you've got an app, you've got to know when to retire a certain piece within it. Yeah, fair. Moving on, we like the odd chat about privacy breaches here. We talked about the the UK electoral breach a few months, well, a few weeks ago, I think, at this point. And I think this is a particularly bad one. So the genetic company, 23andMe, who will do profiling of your, your own genome based on you sending them a blood sample, which sounds initially like quite a creepy idea anyway. I don't particularly like the thought of private companies having genetic access to your data. I know how careful we are with it in the research world and sort of all the various privacy concerns we've got about because for those that don't know, genetic data can be sequenced at a number of levels, a sort of fairly high level, which is just, you know, you are a white male of roughly this age who's got X, Y, and Z, and you're made up of 23%, and you know, African, 5%, Spanish, you know, however, however these things, white, sort of European, I should say, within that. And then you've got a very highly sequenced down to the smallest possible elements within that which the only person in the world that can ever be is you because it's your genome you know it's the least private data you can have it knows everything about you down to you well so 23andme do a bit of this and all their user data leaked on people's genomes and frankly that's about as horrifying a hack as i can imagine because if you've got somebody's genetic data and you took it to say the uk electoral leak and a couple of the financial leaks we've had that's everything you could ever want to know about anyone. Yeah, it's not a good one. Uh, just for clarity, though, it's not everybody's data. It's the people that opted in to find my relative. So like a DNA relative search, which I'd imagine quite a lot of their users would have done. So I reckon about a million users. But it sounds like the attackers use the system against them, This you know, the service that 23andMe do, by scraping lots of little bits of data. And, and then they manage to get lots of data i guess if they did a very small stealthy bit of scraping so it didn't you know raise anybody's radar or come up as a blip they then got a lot of data and then they're, they're trying to sell this data on on the internet so wow it's quite a quite a sophisticated attack yeah and this was two-factor authentic authenticator protected data as well so they managed to get through that level of data protection on this. So it doesn't matter how good you are and how careful you are potentially at your end of protecting your usernames and your passwords and all this kind of stuff. You're still dependent on the company to implement that security in such a way and to keep it up to date. Yeah, but I'm guessing what they've done here is gone through and gone, yep, we want to find a relative and then that's taken them to another relative, to another relative, and they've just daisy-chained the scrape along. So, yeah, not good. Not good horrible breach and these things are the only way to stay secure with your data don't put it online yeah there is that <laughs> moving along uh, two stories about uh, cars that i thought are, are, in, are in our sort of bailiwick really the first one and i don't know if you saw that saw this in the week when i was in san francisco i saw these cruise vehicles just wandering around san francisco uh where they, they were driverless and I remember my daughter pointing at one and going, hang on, there's nobody in that car. And I said, yeah, that's what I've been saying. They're completely autonomous vehicles. You know, they just trundle around San Francisco, stopping, picking you up, dropping you off at the airport. And we had a previous story about people getting hot and heavy in the back of these things and, and the in-car cameras recording what they were doing. But in this case, 
a woman in San Francisco, well, she wasn't knocked down by the crew's driverless vehicle. It was a hit-and-run driver hits her and knocked her into the oncoming path of the crew's vehicle, which drove over her and then stopped on her, pinning her leg to the ground and then wouldn't move because the car was locked down because it thought it had been involved in an accident, even at the point the police rolled up. And then the company went, we can't move it. The police have told us it's an ongoing incident. So this poor woman was trapped underneath the car and was then in a critical condition. I don't know what's happened next, but I just think it's the most horrifying story. Wow. So ladies hit by a separate hit and run incident into the past. It's cruise car. Cruise car hits her, drives over her and stops. I can understand why it would stop. You've been in an accident. Stop. Do nothing. Kind of makes sense. But equally, they need some override surely on this. Well, the fire department had to hoist the vehicle off her leg. It's I've, not I've never seen anything like this, by the way, so I think I would be a little freaked out if I saw one of these just drive, drive past. It is genuinely a double-take moment where you see it, and they're all quite clearly badged crews. You know, A lot of them are Jaguar E-Paces, I-Paces, whichever the, electronic, the, the EV one is, with... The roofs are just festooned with lidars and sensors and cameras. They're fairly obvious, really. But they are literally just zipping along, you know, here, there, and everywhere in San Francisco. Must have seen seven or eight of them. Wow, okay, cool. Clearly not that cool. Well, but is this, we just got to get used to this. Is this going to be the future? Maybe. I mean, San Francisco is probably the most heavily mapped city in the the world at this point with all these companies, you know, Google, Amazon, Apple, others have got vehicles there wandering around, mapping the streets all the time, various traffic conditions. The ethics of electrical vehicles really bother me. Sorry, autonomous vehicles really bother me. I don't know what your BMW is like for its adaptive cruise control, but the Tesla is questionable sometimes in some of the choices it makes. I don't have it. It's an £800 option that I've not bought. I can buy it in the store, though, like on the store on the the cars we talked the other week. So I don't have it. I barely use cruise control anywhere now. Usually in um, average speed camera zones just to make sure I'm okay. But um, yeah, I've never really used adaptive cruise. I know a colleague of mine's got the tech pack and that. He seemed to rate it as being quite good at staying in lanes and things, but I'm just not, I'm not there. I'm kind of with you, I think, on this. Yeah, so I've got it. I don't have the full self-driving package, which I think I mentioned before was another 10 grand on the Tesla if you wanted it. The one I've got is only really good for sort of motorways and dual carriageways. It needs to see lines painted on the road for it to work. You'll see it on the central screen that that's how it works over it is, and that's how it works over the center is. It will stay in lane. It will brake and keep a distance from a vehicle in front, which you can slightly set on, on the management of the car. It does this thing called phantom braking, though. Even though my car has LIDARs, they've disabled it and they only use the camera rather than sort of any any fancier technology than that. So if it sees a shadow, it'll sometimes break because it thinks it's a car, which is quite unsettling on the motorway when your car just randomly decides to brake. So you instead of driving along with your foot over the brake, as you would do in most cruise controls, you drive along with your foot over the accelerator to stop the phantom braking happening. It's a bit bizarre. Wow, maybe I'm glad I don't have this feature. Yeah, I don't use it that much, really. So that was one story. And the second one, I just thought, uh, as a you know, a man of a certain age, taking old British sports cars and turning them into EVs is slightly interesting. But why on earth you'd choose an MGB to turn into an EV is completely beyond me. It's like the worst of all possible words, worlds. It's quite a pretty little car, I guess. But uh, but, but not gone. No, I was going to say it's quite iconic, though, isn't it? It is. It, I know it's not Jaguar type, but it is quite an iconic shape. I'm not against this at all. I've seen a few of these. I think it's right. 
I think I know some people are dead against it and you should keep it as a petrol forever and, and that's the best but actually I quite like seeing this I think it's kind of a cool thing they can do and it keep, keeps that body that shape alive I think I'm all for it I enjoy an EV car so tick I'd love to have a go in something like this I just think old British cars were creaky and they looked pretty but were pretty dreadful as well you know things like the Triumph Stag that couldn't drive through a puddle without flooding the engine because of where they put the air intake and things like that they're not they weren't the best built things and for all the beauty of some of them i think we've moved on in terms of design i don't mind a couple of them kicking around in museums but whenever i see somebody driving like an old e-type or an old stag or an old bentley around i just think what madness how far do you get before it fall it breaks down you know yeah and how, how much are you looking after it maintaining it just to do a 20 mile run on it i love to see him i love classic cars i love cars so I'm there, but I don't I don't own one, and I don't think I could because I, I just don't think I'd have the skills to keep it on the road. Yeah, I mean, they weren't reliable when they rolled out the factory. What they're like 50, 60, 70 years on is questionable. That is true. That is true. Uh, should we move on to media? Go on then. Let's move on to media. So Band of, uh, Band of Brothers sequel, Masters of the Air. Yeah, so I don't know about you, but I watched Band of Brothers. It was kind of in the same sort of way as Saving Private Ryan. It was done by Steven Spielberg. Tom Hanks was an executive producer. It told the story of sort of after the D-Day landings, following some airborne troops around, some of the things, that attacking front lines and stuff. It was fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it starred Damien Lewis in one of the sort of title roles for it. It was a really well done TV show. They made another one called, oh gosh, The Pacific, I think it was called. Yep which was similar, but set in the Pacific theater of war. And I just thought this was really interesting that we're going to have Masters of the Air and it's premiering on Apple TV+. Plus. Yeah, I think this is great. So I did watch Band of Brothers. I haven't seen the Pacific, but I made a note actually because I do want to go and watch both of them again. I think I'd quite enjoy that. I love that era of history. This looks great. Apple TV are getting some, they're getting some good things on, on the platform, aren't they? Yeah, this is a good thing. And I, I'm the same. I actually sat and watched it with my youngest daughter. She was really interested. She was doing World War II stuff at school. She'd watch Saving Private Ryan. Don't ask me what age she was. I don't want to get into that. But, you know, she thoroughly enjoyed Band of Brothers as well. And I'm sure it'd be something we could actually sit together and watch again because it is quite compelling television. You know what? I haven't seen Saving Private Ryan for ages, actually. I wouldn't mind to rewatch that 20 years on. It's a good film. So, what's this? 911 Inside the President's War Room. Yeah, so I was on my Apple TV the other night and I saw this there, 9-11 Inside the President's War Room on Apple TV. It was actually made in 21, so I, I don't know if it's a documentary that Apple have then bought off of somebody that's already been aired maybe and the rights were up. So it's all, all obviously about the the 9-11 disaster in America. Um, but actually, I hadn't seen really much about this in the, the last 20 years since, since it all happened. Uh, it's really well done. Some of the footage they've got, the way they tell the story. Obviously, we all know the story, and it's, it is horrible to watch. I do struggle to watch certain bits of it. But they put it together really well. Like I said, I don't know why it's on Apple TV+, Plus, but it, but it is. But really, really interesting, and lots of footage, a bit more behind the scenes, some still photos. I did wonder, who's taking photos of the president while they're trying to work out what to do about a potential terrorist attack? And they were, they were a lot more worried about the president's well-being than I really had thought about because he was out in Florida I think doing a meet and greet at a primary school and there are obviously all these issues going on in New York and in Washington so I would recommend if you've got an hour and a half and you're interested in 9-11 at all it just tells about the day unfolding and all of that I thought yeah it was quite interesting to go back and see it but it's a tough watch but very well made but it was obviously made pre-Apple TV. 
Hmm, interesting. No, I like a documentary. That's that's a good recommendation. Well, we've got some coming soon. Yeah, so this is like amazing for me because we've had a Christopher Nolan film. We've got a Martin Scorsese film coming up. We've got a Michael Mann film coming. And we've got a David Fincher film coming. And of my four favourite directors, I love the majority of their work. So Christopher Nolan, we've had Oppenheimer, haven't we? Which we've all seen, which was fantastic. And then we've got Killers of the Flower Moon, which is Martin Scorsese. It's coming out to cinemas in October, but it will be on Apple TV Plus, I'm sure, at some point. So really looking forward to that. We've then got Ferrari, which comes out, I think, at Christmas. I think it's on the 26th of December, which always seems an odd day to me to release a film. But again, that that's directed by Michael Mann, who I love because he did Heat, obviously, and various other films like Collateral and that. So I'm excited to see that. And it's got Adam Driver in it as well. And then there's The Killer, which is David Fincher, and it's got Michael Fassbender in it, which I've not seen many films, I don't think, with Michael Fassbender, but it looks great. He looks really good in it. So, yeah, I'm excited to see all of these films. I think it's great. We've got these really good directors doing modern films and three, four very different subject matters. You know, if you think you had Oppenheimer, Ferrari, there's this killer one. And then I don't even know what Killers of the Flower Moon's really about. I've since seen the trailer for it, but but really curious to see what they're all like. And I see you've just added in another one. Yeah, so I've added in Napoleon, which is a Ridley Scott film that's coming to Apple TV+. Plus. It's going to be released in cinemas as a two-and-a-half-hour cut, but the Apple TV Plus one's going to be a four-hour cut, so Ridley Scott is really going for it there. The Killers of the Flower Moon, I actually saw a review for this morning, and it has an amazing review, and it is about the uh, Native American having the land stolen, effectively, and their, and their property stolen by incoming Westerners, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, you remind me, actually, I think I saw one, it gave it a five-star review. I think it was on Apple News, I saw it. But we've got some amazing films by, you know, these are like the four or five probably best directors of the last 20 years, maybe maybe slightly longer. So I think it's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, super excited. Remind me, Coda already got a best picture, didn't it? I can't remember. Possibly, I didn't enjoy that film that much. I thought it was clever, but it didn't do it for me. Yeah, I kind of feel the same. It was a very well done film. I thought the acting was incredible and all the rest of it, but it was a bit predictable on Saturday matinee. Yep. But yeah, well done. I'm trying to frantically look for Coda as we go. Best director, I think it got. So uh, I had uh, forgotten about Ridley Scott, though. I love a lot of his body of work, especially The Martian. That was the one that I really enjoyed of more recent time. I love The Martian. Al- Alien, Blade Runner. No, of recent time. So, yeah, the Martian was the Martian was a return at form. I'll give you that. It was very good. What a cool film! So no, you're right. I mean, obviously, Alien Blade Runner. So yeah, fantastic. So super excited. Some amazing films coming up. Hopefully, plenty of entertainment because we have so many TV series lately. I'm actually excited that we've got some proper films coming. I'm actually looking forward to Oppenheimer coming out on. I was going to say on DVD, but on the iTunes store, so I can watch it again because I really enjoyed it. And that segues nicely into a thing that I wanted to talk about, which is that we have got an awful lot of TV shows at the moment. I suspect Disney Plus is beginning to fill up with garbage, though. So I'm just noting that I quite like a bit of Marvel. I quite like a bit of Star Wars. Ahsoka, which I've talked about a couple of times, was it took three or four episodes for it to get up to any sort of speed. I still maintain it's only of interest to you if you've watched the animated stuff from back in the day. So if your sons, for example, were really into their Star Wars, this would make absolute sense to them because they'd followed the various cartoons that had led up to it. I'm not 
knocking cartoons. You can have a lot of entertainment in the cartoon, as we know from Rick and Morty, as we know from The Simpsons, as we know they can, they've got Futurama, they've got cultural stories to tell. But I think it just shows a certain level of commitment to go back and look at this. And it eventually became okay, although the ending was rubbish, I must say. I have been unable to watch Secret Wars, which was Marvel's big TV show starring Nick Fury and Olivia Colman and Sam Jackson and all the rest of it, just because it's rubbish. And I just think the quality that Disney are just pumping out any old stuff to keep subscribers at this point, because they don't have the content of a Netflix or the quality of an Apple TV or an HBO or something. So I just wonder if it's garbage now, you know? Yeah, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think a lot of TV shows could be films. And some films, like Napoleon, perhaps should have been a TV show if it's going to be four hours long. And I do worry that some of them are making TV shows just long and slow when they don't need to. And obviously, yeah, Apple TV, Apple TV Disney TV, Disney Plus, I'll get the words right in a second, apologies. But they're obviously trying to fill their platform. And it's, I don't know, I think it's not necessarily the right strategy. I think they need to be more critical about what they have. Obviously, Apple struggled for a while to get critical mass of shows and they haven't got back catalogue but they just keep slowly chipping away at it and i think they're doing a good job yeah i'd go with that i think a little thing worth mentioning actually is that i got a chance to see the blackberry movie and i don't know if you've had a chance to see it as well but what a terrific film that is yeah i've seen it loved it fantastic film just so well done and it's quite tight it's it goes really quickly you know, they could have easily made that into a TV series, but they didn't. They kept it really tight and just thought, yeah, so well done. Fantastic. Told the story really well because it was a story which I knew bits of, but I never owned a Blackberry, which is probably the only person in the world that's in his 40s that didn't own a Blackberry. But they told the story so well, so so succinctly, really good pace, got a lot in there. But yet, yeah, I, I don't know, for me, I thought they filled in the gaps really well. They explained the tech really well. And it didn't have massive digressions and slow pieces. It was just a really well-paced type movie. And yeah, I'd like to see more like that. And I do like a movie. And I think that's why I like a movie. I'm with you. It was a very well-told tale. It had a superb cast. It looked terrific. I think, you know, just the story is so compelling to have such a march and such a presence in people's minds for a device. Because the BlackBerry really did dominate anybody who was vaguely interested in in, in tech, frankly. You, getting your email on a device, the ability to have it instantly, as they say in the movie, when, how they brought instant messaging to that kind of platform as well, was just fantastic. And they were well-built devices, you know, the quality of them, their perception as being, you know, you were a real mover and shaker if you had a BlackBerry or your people thought you were something else because you had a BlackBerry, wherever you sort of stood in that spectrum. There's no denying that they really pushed forward technology and mobile computing. And how you lose a lead like that, it's just so well told. And by the way, what an amazing soundtrack that film has as well. Uh, the soundtrack was fantastic. Uh, but it was a great story of complacency, definitely. I found it really interesting because I didn't realise as they reprogrammed the cell towers in America to double the capacity, I think, if I, if I remember the numbers correctly. But yeah, that is probably, for me, one of the best movies I've seen this year, just because it a, it's in my wheelhouse, it's a tech story, but just so well paced uh, and really well acted soundtrack. Like all of it just came together and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, get to the cinema and watch it, it's great. Yeah, I'm waiting for that one to come out as well. On the, I saw an advert for it on the iTunes store, so it's coming soon. So again, that's probably one I would pick up. Yeah, I'd go with that. It's a great film. Give those producers and actors and everything some money because it's terrific. Should we do some games? Let's do it. So we said last week that the deal was done with Activision Blizzard. 
But according to the FTC, it's not quite done. But from the feeling I've got, I don't think there'll be very long the FTC in America holding this particular deal up. They're hoping they're going to get it done next week. I haven't heard anything yet. I published the story at the beginning. I found the story at the beginning of the week. So maybe the deal's done. Maybe we, that's follow up for next week, isn't it? If we can just go, yeah, it's all done. Move on because I'm bored yeah. of it now. We are bored of it. It keeps coming up. Good. Moving on. I mentioned this last week. Little game on uh, Apple Arcade. I think you should check this out. As a fan of Commandos, and that's our next story as well, Cypher 007 on Apple Arcade has a very Commandos light feel to me, sort of stealthily going around trying to achieve things within a mission and all the rest of it. I get the impression from the size of the graphics that it does work on your phone, but I think you should check it out on your iPad. And I know there's quite a lot of detail uh, in the animations and everything as well. It's got a good little soundtrack, unsurprisingly, for a 007 thing, and I just wanted to recommend I'd have it on my phone. It's kept me vaguely entertained, but you being the 007 fan, I think you should check it out. Okay, I'll put that on the list as well. I just don't play many games on my iPhone. That is possible. Oh, my iPad, for that matter. I just don't think of them as gaming devices, and I know Apple are making noises in that direction that we've spoken about, but I need to, I'll make a note, and yeah, that and, and Call of Duty, I need to come back and play. Good. And then next, speaking of Commandos, uh, I'll let you talk about the story. So you sent me this about they're going to do a game called Commandos Origins. So basically bring back the concept by the looks of it of what was the original Commandos from the late 90s, which I loved and played through very recently. And there's a trailer in the link that we provided at Rock, Paper, Shotgun. And it looks great. Like They've made it all 3D, which is obviously very different than the original one because it was kind of a pseudo 3D, the original one, very much a 2D background with semi-looking 3D caps on it, but it looks really good. So I'm curious to see what they do with it, because I really liked it, that you had a mission, it was quite a tight mission, and you knew what you had to do, get from A to B, and you had to do different mechanics on various levels. So I'm curious to see whether they will keep some of that sort of original feel or aesthetic of the game, but I think they've done a good job. It looks looks good from the trailer. Did you watch the trailer? I didn't watch the trailer. I just saw this and thought, I must send this to you. Yeah, I can't explain why I like that game so much, but I do. And I'd like to see them do like a Command and Conquer, more like the original one, where it's just a little bit simpler, or a Warcraft 3, Warcraft 3, or Warcraft 2. Do you know what I mean? Where it's just not got all the extra complexities that you get in modern games and never-ending maps. And I actually quite like come and do a mission, start off with a smaller map, an easier mission, and you slowly build over 10 to 15 missions of it getting harder and harder. And then you have the final one at the end, Whereas a lot of games these days aren't like that and they're never ending or like Spider-Man goes on forever. You know, and I think it is nice to go back to that old mechanic because I quite like you get a sense of accomplishment, don't you? As you move up through the missions and you get, you know, like a new unlock, whether it's a new character or a new weapon. So yeah, I'm keen to see what it looks like. Fair enough, except Grand Theft Auto, which is very open-ended and you can do what you like in it, which is a very different game to what you're talking about with Commandos. Grand Theft Auto is, and I did like Grand Theft Auto, but I think I peaked at the Vice City one, which is probably one of the smallest maps they ever did, because it was one where you could actually traverse the whole city and roughly know where you were going, whereas I think they ended up getting so big that it had the same problem. It was just too big, I think. I don't know. I quite like the last one set in New York and the one set in Los Angeles, just because I've been to New York. I recognize some of those streets I've driven down, you know, and you've seen so much of Los Angeles on TV that it was really obvious when you were doing GTA 5, 4 and 5, which were those two, given different names, but New York and Los Angeles. Well done. Great. Very in-depth. I'm not surprised they're still not, they still are as popular as they are today, really, based on them. But yeah, it's interesting what you say about Commandos, and that's another reason I think you should try the Cypher 007, because it's more that... 
one mission and out kind of routes rather than that sort of ongoing world. I want to give a little bit of real-time follow-up. It was Best Picture that Coda won. Ah, oh, there you go then. Best Picture. Best Picture. Should we do a short main show? Main show, let's do it. So I just had a thought, really. We, in the build-up to the release of the iPhone 15, made a lot of noise about USB-C. Uh, is there going to be a massive backlash from the public? Are we going to see people complaining here, there, and everywhere about the fact that we're being made to buy cables and all the rest of it? And I haven't seen any. Have you seen any? No, I haven't. And I kind of think we haven't because we've had so many other gates of heat or bends or cracks or whatever gate insert here. Um, and obviously there was case gate with the, the fine woven case. Um, so I wonder whether that's distracted everybody. But equally, I think it's very different than 10 years ago when Lightning was introduced. How many other devices in your house do you have that's USB-C? You know, people have got the Nintendo Switch, they've got their laptops, they've got their iPads potentially. So I think that's all helped Apple, or they've moved to Qi. So whereas last time when they changed the connector, it impacted everybody because there was nothing like that connector before and it was the only way of charging the device. Whereas now you've got two ways of charging the device. You've got the, the connector on the bottom or you've got the wireless charging. And I think where the connector at the bottom is shared with many other devices, that's probably removed the friction from it, if that makes sense. So that's why I think it's less of a noise. Maybe Apple did it at the right time. For me, I'd like to have seen them probably do it a year or so earlier maybe, but I wonder if they wanted to actually do the 10 years that they said they were going to do with Lightning. Like we've had Google just announce seven years of software updates. I think Apple said when Lightning came out, this is going to set us up for the next 10 years. They've delivered on that promise, whether people remember it or not. Yeah, and you know, their worst hand was slightly forced by the EU and others, I think, for the move towards the connector. Slightly. But I agree with you. And I've popped a, a link in the show notes to a sort of a slightly contrasting view about this, about one of the things we may have lost, although I would debate this as well, is that we used to have a made for iPhone program, so you know if you plugged in a, a lightning cable into your phone, that it was kind of built to a standard, as long as you built one from the MFI made for iPhone pro, iPhone slash iPod program. So having that quality and knowing what the cable would do and let's face it with the iphone it was basically just charging with some very slow data transfer as well that has kind of been blown open now by USB-C because not only is there a difference between an iphone 15 and its USB-C speed and an iphone pro and pro max USB-C speed not even in the same ballpark frankly you get usb2 speeds with the, with the iphone 15 and thunderbolt 3 effectively speeds with the USB-C connector you don't know from looking at a cable whether which one of those it supports. And basically the closest anybody's got is if it's a bit thicker, the USB-C cable, it's probably one that can handle the increased data load that you're going to see in one of those things. So that's a consideration. And the other thing within this article is Dan Morin, who I'm going to talk about again in a minute, also has now having problems with CarPlay in his car about is it the car the, the cable that he's got in his car that's now causing the connectivity problems where his car randomly loses connection to his phone or his car head unit loses connection, CarPlay connection to his phone? And that didn't happen before. You know, with the USB-C A in the car to the lightning of his phone, he had a rock solid connection. You're probably going to say something like, he just needs to move to wireless CarPlay. But I don't think that's the answer for everybody because not all head units support it or they don't want to buy the adapter. But frankly, this is a bit of a pickle Apple need to get out of. Yeah, I haven't used wired CarPlay with it yet. I haven't been in my wife's car. What does annoy me though is when my wife's on a lightning phone and I've got a USB-C phone, I probably need to have a separate cable in her car or I move her to wireless. So I've not experienced it, but I'm not surprised 
that there are going to be some minor issues like this, I guess. But it must be really frustrating because CarPlay is one of those things I think you just take for granted. And if it isn't wireless, then yeah, it could be a real issue. What I found quite interesting when reading the article and listening to Dan talk about this is that why don't these cables say on them what they are? You know, this is a USB 2 speed 1, this is a full Thunderbolt speed 1, this is whatever it is. Or when you plugged it into the phone, why couldn't it tell you what it was? So, you know, you, this is the reason it's not performing the way you expect it to. Yeah, I don't disagree with that statement because you can't always go on the thickness. I've certainly found that when I think plugging in my Steam Deck into a USB-C monitor didn't work. I was like, oh, that's a shame. And it wasn't actually the monitor, it was just the, the cable. So it would be good if in the OS, maybe in the about screen, it could go cable and just tell you what 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 the cable's rated for. Because it probably knows, but it's just not exposed anywhere. Yeah, I agree. And there's no reason in the same way that when you get your AirPods close to the phone and it pops up that little thing saying the charge state is your phone, plug in a cable, you know, this is a USB 3 cable, it's capable of this speed data transfer done and it goes away again. Just so you've got that immediate lookup. I guess it's maybe not in the cable manufacturer's interest. It may not be in Apple's interest to do this, but I think as consumers of technology, as we all build up more and more cables, you know, as you've got to eyeball everyone, how do you test what's what? Nobody's going to go and buy a tester to find out. And as you've discovered, plugging it into a screen may be the only way you discovered that wasn't a cable for what you wanted to do. So I just thought this was an interesting thing to think about, really. Yeah, I'd love to know what all my cables can and can't do, because I've no idea, I must confess. Yeah. On a similar note, moving on from our uh, sort of USB-C thing, this was another uh, experience that Dan Moran had with iCloud. And there's a, there's a long article about it, but the long and the short of it is he got up one morning and none of his email would deliver, none of his messages would go, none of his backups were working. Nothing was really happening from about seven in the morning. And he, he actually, he's a journalist who's worked for Macworld and others and works with Six Colors. He knows what he's doing with Apple stuff. He actually phoned them up. And he got put with tech support and they went through all the sort of problem solving and restart this. And have you tried that? And is it your Wi-Fi? And all the steps that we as sort of tech enthusiasts and know about, about these kinds of things sigh and groan about when we're told to have you restarted the router? Have you restarted your phone? And you go, yes, I did. No, I didn't. And you try and skip past it. He tried to do all of that. And this is part of what Dan comes to here is there's a problem with iCloud that we've alluded to before where it is a black box. You just hope that it works and it doesn't always. And when things go wrong, how do you fix that? You know, the the step he didn't want to take was to sign out of iCloud on his Mac because who knows what that will do, and that's not great either. You're making a face as, as as we talk about this. The thought of doing it is frankly terrifying. What happens if I can't sign back in? Yeah, because that could be a whole world of hurt. And if it's just a server error on there, and you just need to wait an hour until they get get back up and running, then you've just exacerbated the problem. But the long and the short of it was, he finally got hold of an Apple guy who said, "Oh." And he heard him laughing to another support agent on the other end of the phone. And he said, oh, at nine o'clock, this will be fixed. I can't tell you why. It's a secret. But it's 12 hours. At nine o'clock, this will be fixed. And at 9.01, all of his email and all of his iMessage and absolutely everything started delivering again. And that is just the strangest thing I think I've heard, frankly. There's obviously some scheduled maintenance, but not shared? But why just don't... I don't know. Well, you'd think patches to servers, maybe, or CDN updates, or one of these things, but why just for his email? And surely these things are distributed. They don't just live on one server. It's a distributed thing that's, you know, around the world. So the best he could come up with, and his two co-hosts on the Rebound podcast, which I recommend you listen to, it's, it's, it's a very good episode this week, were that maybe there was some sort of subpoena against either him or somebody else on that server that Apple wasn't able to talk about. 
Wow. I wouldn't even thought about that. It's it's it, the rabbit hole goes a long way down on this one, doesn't it? It comes down to why is there any secrecy on something like this? Why can't Apple say, "Oh, our servers are being patched" or whatever the reason is? This culture of secrecy they've got sometimes extends too far. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think it is frustrating sometimes. Of we're not going to tell you nothing, and it's like, can you just tell me something? No, and that is frustrating. It is. Anyway, two interesting thoughts about USB-C and, and experiences of iCloud that sort of caught my attention this week. Now, that's fair enough. So look, for the other half of the main show, I was going to talk about a new bit of tech that I bought because I seem to be buying random bits of USB-C gadgetry lately. I've bought my my Switch. I bought my, not my Switch, sorry, my Steam Deck. I bought my iPhone. And so to top it all off, I've gone and bought a uh, Amazon Kindle Scribe, which I'm holding up for Rod to see. I can't really explain why I went and suddenly bought one. I'd been eyeing one for a little while and I thought, oh, Amazon had got a sale coming up. They'd already put a bunch of stuff on sale that, that was made by them, like their Aero products, some other Kindle devices. And then I think it was Friday last week or Thursday last week, the Scribe was up for sale, had 20% off and they had a refurbished one, which was even cheaper. So I managed to buy the 64 gigabyte refurbished one with the premium pen and I got it for less than the, the 16 gig one with the non-premium pen. So I felt quite pleased. It was still a reasonable amount of money to spend on something. There is a black and white screen that you can make some notes on and you can read some books on. So it's quite a limited, obviously, use case. Um, so where do we start with this? So my reason for buying it is I kind of wanted to digitize my notes and have them in more than one place and get back into being a lot more consistent in my meetings of being a note taker and referring back to them. So that's why I bought it. I thought I'd risk it and try the Amazon one knowing that I could return it. So when it arrived, I took out the box very carefully in case I had to box it all back up and send it back if I changed my mind. I've only had it for five or five days, I think, by now. So it's still quite new. It's not my thing of the week because I don't think I've had it long enough to, to, to say. But quite impressed with it, I must say. So it's like a big Kindle Oasis. Um, similar sort of design where you've got a slightly bigger bit on one side, you know, a bigger bezel. Um it's got a pen that came with it and that magnetically attached, pretty much like your iPad. It only works in portrait mode, which I thought was odd, but I can kind of see why and I'm slowly getting used to it. It's got one port on it, which is a USB-C port, which is on the, on the side, weirdly enough. So on the side, on the left-hand side, is a USB-C port and a power button. So I see any things on the outside. On the button, bottom, there are four rubber little feet, which is perfect because when you lay it on the desk to make notes on it, it doesn't move. It runs the same sort of Kindle OS that you're used to if you've had a modern Kindle, which actually works quite well on the larger screen. It certainly looks very sharp. The screen's 300 DPI. And the only difference on this one is it's got a note-taking section. And you can create folders and notebooks within folders with different paper. And you can scribble on it. You can email uh, the notes out and it will send them as a PDF or you can convert them to text. Um, you can send PDFs to it and you can annotate them and, and all of that and you can make notes in books that you read i must confess i'm not a, a person that reads a book to and makes a note that's not something i really do i read a book more for pleasure than for research um, and i've i've got I've, I've had it i've created some folders and i'm taking notes on it and i'm really enjoying it and i do think the engineering they've done of the pen writing on the screen is really good there's nothing clever in the in the pen or pencil it's just a dumb device there's no battery in it or anything but works really well the premium pen that i've got it's got a rubber on the top 
and it's got a button on it so you can flick to the highlighter say or something else and, and draw with it without going in the in the toolbar and then it's just obviously got a nib i did buy some replaceable nibs because they were super cheap at the moment with the amazon sale coming up in the uk and i, I really like it i've it's got me back into my note taking in my meetings referring to it the the way you draw on the screen and i'm no artist and i'm my handwriting isn't fantastic but actually it works really well they've done a, an amazing job of the engineering it's one of the only tablets of its type that does the 300 dpi because i looked at a couple i nearly bought a remarkable which would have been about 100 pounds more in the um, but i was tempted because it it is designed just for for doing what i want it for going to meetings taking notes um but i went with the kindle in the end because i thought i can double it up and use it to read books i've got quite a lot of kindle books um and that's what i've done and that was a brief overview, but very much like recent Kindle hardware. Not not a lot different there other than a bigger screen. It has a 10.2-inch screen. Oh, I've got questions. I think my first question is, why, why is the pencil premium? What makes it premium? Just because it's got a rubber on one end and a button. Right, so the non-premium one doesn't have a rubber or a button. No, it just is a pencil. And I think you can okay. swap this out for other digital pencils in essence, but I haven't really explored that area. So hardware-wise, when you held that up there, it looks similar in size to a large iPad, but obviously an awful lot thinner and lighter. Is that fair? Yes. So 10.2-inch screen, and it's got one wide bezel on it, as you can see, and the rest are fairly standard bezels. Um, and it's definitely a lot, definitely a lot, lot thinner. And you're going to carry this and an iPad at the same time? Yep. But doesn't the iPad have a pencil and you can make notes on its screen? It does, but the bigger problem I've always had with that is... I am, unlike you, I don't have a laptop, so I'm using my iPad 90% of the time when I'm in a meeting to be the, the main screen for that, for people to see me on as well. And if I led it on the table, they'd be looking at my nose. And that's why I've struggled with the iPad to be that device. I also found with the iPad, when I used to take notes on it, I'd then wander off and do other things on it because the temptation's there to check your email, look on the web, send a text message. And actually one thing I quite like with the Kindle is I can't really do much else with it. I could read a book, but I don't think I could do that while I was on a meeting. So for me, the the limit the limits of it is actually a selling point that I can't do much more with it. Yeah, I guess I see that. I mean, it isn't it's the, it's the Unix approach or the Linux approach, isn't it? One app for one thing, you know, which kind of makes sense in one sense. That's your yeah, you can read a book on it, but primarily it's for you taking your notes and all the rest of it. And it's cheaper than the thing you had before, and it does get you something done. I'm not going to say that's the wrong thing to do if it's you know if, it, if it's scratching an itch that you've got that it's going to solve that sort of problem. And we've talked about enough about note-taking apps on this podcast that I'm not surprised, actually, you've got a dedicated device for doing that. I guess the ability to turn them into PDFs and send them off and do all that kind of stuff is a benefit over handwritten notes. Is it more robust than a notebook or is it more, you know, do you know what I mean? It's not, you're worried about it in your bag next to your iPad, potentially you pick it up and you go with it. You're worried about breaking the screen, you know, that kind of thing. Not really. I mean, the hardware feels fantastic. The only thing I did notice is the screen is slightly, it's got a flat top on it, but you can see the screen is lower down inside the body if that makes sense like the old ipad used to be now i think for me and if you've got the kindle app on your iphone or your ipad you can see your notes you can't edit them but you can see them so you can refer to them but no it's just more having all my notes with me because sometimes i sketch on a bit of paper on my desk and then i go into the office and i'm like oh i haven't got that bit of paper that's on my desk or i'd end up taking a photo of it so, so i thought no this way i have all my notes in one place 
and I certainly need to refer back to them. You know, next week I'll meet with somebody and I want to check that they've done the thing I asked them to do two weeks ago. So it's just more of that, having it all in one place rather than relying upon uh, the scrap of paper on my desk and that, that kind of thing. So I thought I'd risk it. And like I said, they had a good sale on. And I do like it when Amazon has a sale because they take usually a decent amount of money off it. You know, they took, I think I saved about £100 on this overall. And I did get a refurbished one. Uh, but you wouldn't know it's refurbished other than it came in a brown box. It didn't have a fancy box. But how often do you look at the box once you've opened it anyway? Super easy setup experience as well. I just popped it on the Wi-Fi, signed it in my Amazon account, and you're off to the races. And because it's syncing all the notes to the cloud, fairly comfortable. You know, if ever this did get broken or lost and I went and bought a new one, it would just re-download them all. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm pleased thus far with my purchase. I think they've done a really good job with it. So, sorry, one thing you said that was interesting there. It syncs to your iPad or your Mac account, but you can't edit the note, the actual notes then? But you got a pencil in your iPad. Why won't it let you do that? I'm guessing they haven't uh, written that interface on the iPad to do any interaction with it. So they are, there in essence, in a read-only format, which is a good V1, but are they going to do a V2? And I don't know to that. You know, Will they do an updated version yet where you could edit the notes, which would be nice. Mm-hmm. Because then if ever I forgot my, my, my scribe, I, I could then get to them on my iPad yeah. and actually edit them. You're more, more likely to have your iPad with you. And then just follow-up question, does it do handwriting recognition? So a lot of iPad apps will try and do the, if you write something down as, as a note, you can turn it into a, a text. Yeah, I must confess, I haven't really used that. So you can do convert text to email. Can't do it. Oh, okay, well, but, but does it then store it as a picture or, or text? Uh, this this is a live this demo. A, you don't need to answer it now. A live demo. I, I may need to feedback because I haven't needed to do it. <laughs> right. I will put that in your homework for next week then because I'm curious now. So whilst it uh, seems to do a good job of converting it, pushed it all onto a couple of lines rather than adhering to my line spacing, if that makes sense, because I use the lined notepaper. And you can pick loads of different notepaper to draw on and different, you can have different pens and pencils and, and the sensitivity works really well, I forgot to mention that, so you can shade lightly with your pencil, push down really hard and get a thick line. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily seem to, seem to adhere to it. And then you just tap share and because it knows my email address, um, I could just tap on that and then push send and it will send me a text file. So I try out, but I don't think I, most of my notes, I don't need to share them with people. It's just usually my scribbles. Um, and like I say, it's more for me to refer back to what did we talk about last week? Have we done it? What we, what we talk about next week? Um, so I'm quite enjoying it. And I've set myself up a to-do list on here. Uh, so I'll, let, I'll report back on how yeah. well I use it. And obviously, if I stop using it, I will send it back. But so far, it looks good. Fair enough. Like I say, if it scratches that itch and it does the thing you need to do, then fine. Link in the show notes if anybody's interested in a new one. I'm sure you didn't pay that for Chris. It's not a cheap device. It's, it's the, not a cheap device. Good. Okay. Moving on. App of the week. I was going to talk about something else, but I'm going to save that for next week because I've just remembered, as we're, uh, literally as we're talking, something else I meant to recommend. So I don't know if you have this problem. You're in bed. Your device is in dark mode. You tap on a link on something and, and it opens up in Safari and you get a blinding white web page. Web page shoved in your face. Amazon is a real culprit for this, actually. Lots of websites, lots of small indie websites are sensitive to the mode of your device and can present you a, a black web page with lighter colored text so you can read it and it doesn't blind you at night. If you download the Noir app, I think it was $3.99 I paid for it, within Safari at least, it will make those web pages black with a style sheet or something. I'm not entirely sure how it does it. It activates as an extension within Safari on your iPhone and your iPad and you will get dark mode. This is fantastic. In the couple of days I've been using it, I've been quite impressed. I wish it integrated with 
the browser launched within other apps. So Net Newswire is where I tend to read my stories. I click on that, I still get blinded by the register or by Amazon or something like that. So maybe there's a way I can force those apps to launch in Safari and then I'll get them in, in the way that they're meant to be. That's something I need to look at. But actually, just having the ability to open Safari and not be blinded at some ridiculous hour of the morning or just before I'm going to sleep or something like that has been well worth it for me so far. So Noir. Yeah, I've heard about this, but I've never used it, I must confess, because I always wonder, will it do something funky with the website? But I guess it's just looking for the background colour of the main body. Okay, that makes sense. Maybe I should check that out. Decent job. Thing of the week. Ah, so thing of the week for me is a bit different this week. If you remember last year, I recorded a podcast from my car because I was at a literature festival. I've gone back to the literature festival and I thought I'd touch on it because I've actually seen a, a few people that were relevant to this conversation. So last night I saw Brian Cox from Succession. Uh, he was very good, very witty. He was talking about his biography that I've read. He did end it by telling everybody to F off in the tone of Logan Roy, which was quite amusing. Uh, but he was very funny and came across really well. So, so that, was, that was great to see him. And then followed him with uh, Nick Frost from Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead and various other films. He was fantastic. I must confess, he had everybody in stitches. He wasn't sold out, which was really disappointing because it would probably been better if there were a few more people in the room but he was just great came across really well really engaging and a lot of the feedback as we were walking out a lot of people talking about it was just whoa what a show for an hour it just flew by I mean he was great and then to top it off on Tuesday I'm going to see Mick Heron who obviously wrote the Slough House books that we've been talking about and the Apple TV show that's then spawned from it so there you go that's my thing of the week a bit different this week I, I try and pick something different each week I'm a bit off the wall that's very good. I'm quite jealous of two of those people, for sure. Brian Cox and Nick Frost, both. Uh, I rate them both. I rate them both for everything that they do, frankly, and uh, that's impressive. And let's face it, I like Slow Horses as well, which is coming back on Apple TV soon, actually. I think it's before the end of the year we're getting season three. Oh, brilliant. I'm looking forward to it. I've read, I've read their books for three and four, so hopefully they're going to do... If, if, I think they're definitely doing up to four. I don't know about whether they're doing the next four books because there's eight in total. Um, but anyway, I'm going to see him on when I see him on Tuesday. So yeah, looking forward to that. But um, seeing uh, Nick Frost at nine o'clock on a Sunday night in a Cotswolds town was a bit surreal in a way. But um, like I say, just generally came across as a very humble person. Uh, really good. So yeah, would, would recommend. Brilliant. I think we can call that a show, Chris. Yeah, I think so. So thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to get into contact, Rod is at g5maniac at mastodon.scott. I am at underscore cjp at mastodon.social. Or you can drop us an email at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Talk to you next week, Chris. Cheers, Rob.